world of dog sports has lots of options to keep your dog's four paws busy. Let's dive deeper in four paws sports. Good evening and welcome to the episode number three of the Four Paws Sports Podcast here. I'm Jeff and my co-host tonight again, Mary Drexler here. How are you doing tonight, Mary? I'm good, Jeff. How are you tonight? Uh, spectacular. Decent weather for the most part for the weekend at least and got some good stuff for the weekend. Uh, today, training-wise, we had some good uh, good weather. A little, a little sloppy out there, but I could uh, train at least in my uh, shorts and t-shirt for at least today. Tomorrow will be another story, but uh, otherwise, no, decent, uh, decent day for uh, a Tuesday on uh, Valentine's Day, no less. Well, I'm a little jealous because it's been raining here, but that's okay because my dogs all had the day off because they were getting massages today. So, you know. Ah, uh, lucky them. That sounds like a good day <laughs> yeah, to me. They, they did not complain. <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> I can't imagine what dog would complain. Uh, my uh, yeah. Kyber loves to molest my chiropractor, so that's uh, that's his uh, way of loving on that stuff there. So he gets his adjustment next week. So, um yeah, Dr. Logan will uh, will love to see him again next week there. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Looks like you had a good weekend this weekend. I did have a good weekend. I showed. I was so proud of my little sonnet. Um we did obedience this weekend and she is just new to the B classes. She finished her utility title back in November. Um and so this is only her third weekend out doing open and utility. And she was marvelous. She already has. Now she went six for six, passed every time she went in the ring. She placed a few times, even won a runoff. She got her very first high combined in obedience. So that was exciting and was a half a point out of her second one, actually, on Sunday. And she, I don't know, she just worked really hard. She got a little better every time. Um, Sonnet is kind of my, um, she's so sweet and she tries really hard, but her back end is a foreign concept to her. Her butt and her back feet are just, <laughs> they're a mystery she cannot solve. And so fronts are really hard because you kind of need to know where your rear end and your feet are if you're going to do a good front. And so we work really hard on that. And she was doing pretty miserable fronts a month ago when I showed her and I was so proud of her because I could see her trying really hard to really think about it. And did she always get there? No, but she was trying and I was just so pleased with her that, you know, because if she's trying, we're going to get there. You know, all I can ask of my dogs is to try and she tried really hard. So I'm really proud of her because I say she's new. So she's already sitting at um, like 177 OM points and eight Arch points and six UDX legs. And that's pretty darn fine, I think, for three weekends in both B classes. So I'm really, really happy with her. Yeah, that's phenomenal. Not to mention the uh, huge ribbon that she was uh, holding there for you in that picture you sent yes. me. <laughs> <laughs> yes, she was, she was very proud of that. She's, she's very proud that she knows how to do that. And well, she probably likes to get her doing it too, but she's <laughs> actually, she was really cute because the Dominion Obedience Training Club gives a bag of dog treats with each placement. They're just like a, they're a dry biscuit but they're like crack to my dogs. Like my dogs <laughs> love these treats. They're from a bakery, I think in Des Moines. And so she figured out that they were giving out those treats and you should have seen her when we go in the ring. Like she was just ready watching the steward that was holding these biscuits. Like, do I get them this time? <laughs> it was really cute. <laughs> so what was that big ribbon for? So that is high combined. That is the highest combined score out of open B and utility. Um, so it's, I think it's probably for me, it's even a bigger deal than high in trial because you have to be good in both classes. And to be honest, like the crowd in Des Moines, I mean, we're very blessed in my area to have some really great competitors. Like we're literally some of the very best dogs in the country are competing. So I never went into the weekend expecting to, um, pick up a ribbon like that at this point in Sonnet's career. I mean, I'm showing against people that I have admired and have been, you know, I have looked up to for literally 30 years. Um, so to go off and win that against those people was, that's a big deal. Like, I was really proud of her. So well, certainly. Yeah. I mean, I would definitely be proud of that, too. 
because she's so new to everything at this point at this level yeah so it makes me really excited about our future you know i like i say she tried i felt like she got a little better every time in the ring i saw her really thinking about stuff we haven't trained a ton life has been a little crazy in my world recently so we haven't (laughs) trained a ton leading up to that weekend but i could see you know so my training was very targeted of i want to make sure you're thinking about this and i could see her going oh that's right and the stuff that she had some issues with was stuff i hadn't targeted and so okay i made sense but the stuff that i had made a point about okay i gotta at least make sure i have her thinking about this she really tried and like say i i always want my dogs trying you know if they're trying even if they're not on point you know that's fine. Like if they're working with me, we'll get there. And I was so proud of her. She just worked her little butt off. So, you know, so we celebrated, well, we had <laughs> roast beef and we had chicken strips. <laughs> My dogs like it when I hit a drive through they know there's something good coming. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, your dogs are definitely more spoiled than mine. Cause I certainly, uh, certainly did not go that route for rewards at that point. Uh, our reward over the weekend was, uh, coming home and not falling asleep while driving. Cause it was a very long weekend <laughs> for me over in, uh, over in the Kansas side of Missouri there. Uh, we, uh, we had our UKI trial this weekend and, uh, nonetheless to say that all three dogs performed admirably for me this weekend. Um, all three picked up a master series buy. So now for November, they get to go all through to round two, uh, for the finals of master series. So now I don't have to worry about that part for the local trials anymore. So super proud of them all for that. I mean, all three boys actually win the uh, master series jumping, um, on round one on Saturday. I was, I was over the moon about that one. Um, some other wonderful noteworthy things that happened for me for the weekend. Uh, so picks has always kind of been a little bit of a pain for weaves just because never know quite what I'm going to get from him. Um, it's always been kind of, eh, maybe I might get a great performance. Maybe I might not, but this weekend he finally showed me that he is truly thinking about his entries and sticking them. Cause before, if it was too hard, he just blow by them. And as frustrating as it is, it means let's just go back to the training board. Well, this weekend there were some entries that he had to really push around that first pole and hold his line and stick it. And I stood there and watched him think through it. And I was like, Holy cow. My dog finally understands the weave poles. Um, that's not to say what Kyber did too. Kyber also had some really hard entries too. And, Man, I've never seen a dog have to think quite so hard and go, wait, this is what I'm supposed to do. And he nailed it. And I just like, that's a proud dad moment right there for me. Um, There was one run in our gambler's course that um, it was sending jump out to the weave poles, but the weave poles were at 90 degree angle. But the first jump was sitting there line where it was aiming more towards the third pole. And I had to send nitro to it by probably, I want to say 25 foot away. Well, I haven't really tested his weep pole skills like I would like to lately, but being older, I just don't want to overdo it for him. So um, watching him actually go, wait, no, I got to come out first and then go back in. It was just amazing just to watch him actually uh, negotiate um, the weep poles for me. But everybody this weekend knocked off a lot of stuff for our uh, U.S. Open checklist for getting the round two buy for November. So it was a phenomenal weekend, but to cap it all off, um, last week, um, I ended up, uh, going into one of those sucker purchases on Facebook that looked almost too good to be true. And I was like, well, you know what? It's on my credit card. So worst comes to worst, I'll just send it back and, you know, I'll get my money back that way. Well, it was one of those, uh, red light therapy, uh, lasers, uh, handheld and it looked like a great deal. I'm like, okay, you know, for a few hundred bucks, we'll, we'll try it. Well, showed up and started using it when we went to the trial and used it on Nitro that night. And I also have a, a according to gospel uh, light uh, light pad for him as well. And I combined that along with using the back on track uh, jackets uh, all throughout the day in between runs. And uh, usually Nitro, he's sore by the end of day one. He runs great day one. And then by the end of the day one, he's super sore. And it takes a little bit while to get him warmed up for day two. But, man, he woke up on Sunday. That dog was ready to rock and roll and 
still, even today, he's no no signs of any soreness. And it was nice because I didn't have to worry about using any anti-inflammatories for him to help with alleviating pain and whatnot. So uh, now I'm a firm believer now of the red light therapy along with the back on track coats there. Combine those two and I feel like I got great results this weekend. That's wonderful. So how long do you have to use the red light therapy? Like how long is the treatment? So it's automatically automatically programmed. You can get uh, 15 minutes per every time that you turn it on there. Um, so the pad I use like on while he lays down, I just put the pad on the side he's laying on so that way it holds it in place. And then I use the handheld one to kind of get more targeted parts of it. So uh, mm-hmm. I can work his shoulders and his elbows and his uh, his wrists where the front end and front end of him has always been more typically more sore on uh, day one uh, or at the end of day one. So that's why I target it while I use that laser pad on the actual um, on the hips and whatnot while he lays down. So kind of a two pronged attack at that rate. Nice. Nice. Well, I'd say that's money well spent then. I would definitely agree with you on that one there. Anything I don't have to do any kind of medications to alleviate pain is always a win in my book. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think yeah. I feel like now that I want red light therapy. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, the nice part is you can use it on yourself too. So and I'm not saying that I didn't use it on my knees because they were tired <laughs> that night too. So it was definitely a big help there for me for sure. That's awesome. That's great. Yeah. yeah anything we can do to keep you feeling good, that sure makes us Yes, definitely. Makes us happy. Definitely so. indeed that was best thing we could ask for there. So Mary and I wanted to talk about uh, some training uh, behaviors when it comes to certain trainers. So we're talking about the positive reinforcement trainers down to purely negative trainers down all the way down to the balance trainers there. And I thought, you know, I'm not a professional dog trainer. I, I don't do this for a living, but Mary, I know that you do this for a living. So I thought I'm going to, I'm going to defer to your uh, expert here in this aspect and uh, we'll, uh, we'll roll on from there and uh, I'll ask you the questions as we go along for the night. That sounds great. Um, so I've been doing this a long time. I started training when I was nine years old and I'm a little older than that now, just a touch. And <laughs> when I started training, the way you trained a dog is you put on your leash and your choke chain and you started jerking the leash and till the dog happened to do the right thing. And then you stopped jerking the leash and you told them they were good. And that's how you trained. You, um, you know, you, that's how you train them to heal. You, to sit, you jerk the leash to get them to sit. You jerked them down to get them to down. And you know, that's how we trained. And then, Somewhere along the line, someone went, well, maybe before we start yanking on their neck, maybe we should teach the poor dog what to do first. It's been very cool to watch dog training evolve. Um, And I should tell you all some background in that I also used to train horses professionally. So I have that background in training animals that can, you know, smush me if they want to and try to get them to like working with me and, you know, do what I want them to do, even though there's not really too much I can do if they really say no. So I have that in my background too. And I train dogs, like we've talked about before, I train obedience and agility and rally and I do confirmation. And so training a lot of variety of dogs and training a lot of variety of things and having my training evolve through the years, I've come to find a lot of pluses and minuses to different methods of training and how to apply them and what I like and what works for me and what works for the dog I'm training. So the first thing that I think is really important is the training method you use or methods you use need to fit the dog you're working. You know, the whole point of training the dog is to communicate with the dog what you want them to do and when you want them to do it. And so our job as a trainer, and whether that's to sit when you're out on a walk and stop at the street or whether it's to do utility or whether it's to do weed pulls or whatever, the dog needs to understand what they're supposed to do and when they're supposed to do it. And we're the ones that understand the criteria as the humans. So we're the ones that have to communicate that information. I like to use a variety when I train. I am, I consider myself a balanced trainer. I do correct my dogs when they understand what they're supposed to be doing. But I also teach them things. 
so I teach in a variety of ways. When I start off, um, I'm always kind of thinking of my end product. And when I start with a young dog or a new dog, because I'm not always teaching puppies, sometimes I'm teaching adult dogs that are looking for another career or to start a career. And what I want the dog to understand is I want the under- them to understand that if they're working with me and they're trying, good things are going to happen. I'm going to help them out. They're going to get rewarded. Life is going to be good. So I will do a variety of things. I will do shaping. I love shaping with young puppies. I love, and for those like, and that's like clicker training. I don't use an actual clicker. I use a vocal marker because I'm too lazy to remember to carry a clicker around. Um, (laughs) But I use, I have a million of them and they're always in the wrong place at the wrong time. So Or I'll sit there and I'll end up flipping it over in my hand and pushing the backside of the clicker. And it doesn't click if you do that, by the way. Um, So I've just gone to a vocal marker because I'm more accurate in my timing. And so I do a ton of stuff with puppies. Like I have a puppy right now and she's doing a lot of body awareness things and stuff where I want her to learn to offer stuff. So like she's learned to put all four feet on a balance disc and she's learned to give me five with each different paw, like depending on which hand I put out. And she's learned to get in a box and she's learned to spin each direction and she's learned, you know, and then like, of course we work like sit and down and come because those are, I mean, they're foundation skills, but they're also life-saving skills. Like you know, I teach a recall right off the bat because I don't want my dog to get run over and die because they slipped out the gate and got away from me. But otherwise, with my puppies and my young dogs, I really want them to learn. I don't really care if they put their own spin on what they're learning. Like, that's when I really like the shaping is where it doesn't have to be. It's not an obedience exercise that must be performed exactly perfectly one way because I use a lot of luring for that because I want to show the dog exactly how I want it to be performed. But when I'm working a puppy, most of what I'm doing, I'm doing shaping because what I want them to learn is to keep trying. I want the dog to understand that if they keep working, good things are going to happen. And I think shaping is great for that. And that's where I think like even the purely positive method, like one of the real great things about it is dogs learn to keep trying. And that's awesome. And so I do a lot of that with puppies and with new dogs, young dogs. And then, you know, another way I teach dog stuff is I teach them to lure. And I do that for a lot of my foundational obedience exercises. Like with my puppy, I want her to down in a very specific way. So I lure her into the down. I want her to sit very specific way and stand very specifically. So I lure that because I don't want her as she's offering to offer extraneous stuff that I'm going to have to get rid of later because I don't want her confused. I don't want her to be like, well, this was okay before. Why are you changing it now? So I lure that stuff. But my goal in that is to be like, so she understands exactly what I want and I'm building a foundation. Where I go from there is I start to teach a dog that there is a consequence if you don't perform a trained behavior. And I don't do a ton of that with puppies or it's very lighthearted. And I say consequence like When you're talking training methods and you start to talk about correction, I think people get in their head that correction has to be painful or nasty or angry or the dog has to be upset. And I really don't like that vision of correction because There are very few times where I want my dog, I mean, I don't want my dog upset. I want my dog enjoying their training. I want them engaged. But what I do want them to understand is that I don't like this and there is a consequence for making, for choosing to do the wrong thing. Okay. What I do is I put in my training. I start to put in, if you don't perform this, this is going to happen. And then this is how you make this consequence or this correction go away. Um, And that was something that I learned from Connie Cleveland, who I think she's one of, one of my favorite obedience instructors. I worked with her some and I just, I, I love the way she breaks stuff down. And she was the one that really taught me that for a correction to be fair, you need to teach the dog how to turn the correction off. And that was like kind of a, well, duh, light bulb moment for me as a trainer. 
And I think coming from a, you know, a purely negative, a purely correction approach, like that's how I started training. You know, we didn't teach the dog anything. Like it was kind of dumb luck if the dog turned the correction off, right? That was that was such a light bulb, like, oh my gosh, moment. And I'll give you an example of where I really use that. I use it in a lot of things, but one of my favorite examples is in the retrieve. So doing obedience, I need a reliable retrieve. Like half of basically half of upper level obedience is retrieving. You know, articles, gloves, dumbbell. Dogs got to pick stuff up when you tell them to. And it's a sticking point for a lot of dogs. When I started training dogs, the way you taught a retrieve, it was called a forced retrieve, and you pinch the dog's ear, and basically you pinch their ear until they went, ah, and they open their mouth, and you suck the dumbbell in and quit pinching and said, good dog. And that's how you taught them to retrieve. And understandably, people went, I don't like this. This is not fun. Nobody nobody had fun, right? And the dogs weren't happy. The people weren't happy. Now, if your tagging was good, the dog understood it pretty quickly. And you didn't have to be pinching their ear all the time. But if your timing wasn't good, the dog was really miserable. And you were really miserable. And it just, it was no fun. Well, and I I'm gonna... think that you can say that for a lot of new people that their timing is definitely going to be off. It's not going to be perfect by their first exactly. dog. Exactly. And even, you know, some people, I mean, one of my strengths as a trainer, I feel, is that my timing is very good. A lot of people, it takes them a little longer. Their Their reactions aren't quite as quick when it comes to reacting to what the dog is doing. And so you want to have, you need to have some ways so the dog isn't going, oh my gosh, I'm I'm just getting punished. You don't want your corrections to be punishment. You want them to be corrections. You want them to, dog, to understand. So like I'm going to use training, how I now train the retrieve as an example. So I still train, technically speaking, I guess it's a forced retrieve in that I do train a correction, but it's not, I'm not trying to be nasty and I'm not trying to make my dog screech, but I am teaching them. So what I do is I take a hold of their little cheek and I just give it a little tug toward the retrieve object. And I train that from close up that that's my retrieve correction. And so what I do is when I'm, when they're early on in their training, I'll tell them their retrieve command and I will, and of course they'll sit there and look stupidly because they don't know what to do. And I'll give them a little tug on the cheek as I'm stuffing the thing in their mouth and then good dog. And I release and they retreat and the dog's like, oh, okay. And I'm not, it's not painful. I don't want it to hurt. I'm just going, when I do this thing, if you put this thing in your mouth, all is good. And so what I do is I build a foundation. And so at some point, because what I like about balance training, and this will kind of come back throughout the discussion here, is that it gives me a foundation for when the dog says, yeah, I hear you, but I don't want to. I hear you, but I don't care if you have food. I don't want it right now. I hear you, but I don't care if I have my toy. You have my toy. I'm tired. I don't feel like it. I'd rather go lay in my bed or go chase a squirrel or whatever. I don't care. And that's where I think the balance training helps you is because if I'm purely positive and I'm like, hey, if you do this thing, you get this really great reward. And the dog's like, yeah, but I don't want it right now then what do you do? And if I'm all corrective and the dog's just like, oh, this just sucks, then okay, yeah, maybe I can get the dog to do it, but nobody's happy at the end. And there's a lot of dogs that, you know, they may say, well, I'm not working for you if all you're going to do is be yanking around on me. But if I teach my dog how to respond to the correction, and it's not, you know, I'm not trying to cause them pain. I'm not trying to make them upset. I'm just being like, hey, when I do this, I want you to do this. Now I have something because I've trained a few service dogs now. And one of the things your service dog has to have is a reliable retrieve. You know, if I say pick up the credit card or pick up the keys or pick up whatever, they've got to do it. And I, a lot of, I mean, I, and the service dogs I've trained have been Samoyeds. Well, most Sammies aren't naturally really driven retrievers. So I need to make a way to make it clear to these dogs that this is what I want you to do. And 
the most recent dog I trained is a young dog named Nelson. And so I taught him this with the little cheek tug. This means you have to retrieve. And so then as I introduced new objects, we'd go back to the object right in front. I'd tell him to get it. And if he did, of course, he got rewarded. And if he didn't, I'd go back to my little correction. And probably the coolest thing is I was watching him think through it. I was teaching him to retrieve keys. Well, a lot of dogs don't like to retrieve keys because they're not wild about that taste of the metal in their mouth, right? And so you could see him thinking, oh, I don't know if I want to do this. And I give him the little cheek tug and just light. Again, I'm not, I'm just like, no, because he understands how to respond to that. And then he can be successful. And watching him go from, I'm going to clamp my teeth and not put this in my mouth because this is icky. And then going, oh, and he'd start to just barely open his mouth a little bit. And I'd be like, yep, that's right. And then pretty soon, you know, it was a couple minutes and he's grabbing those keys. He's grabbing those keys, watching him work through that process because I had a foundation. I had something to fall back on. And that's what I like about taking that, that aspect of the purely positive, taking the aspect of the corrective, but making it something that, again, it wasn't, he wasn't upset. He wasn't crying. He wasn't anything. He was just thinking. He was in a position where he could think it through. He understood what I was, he understood how to respond to what I was asking. Because I'm not sure he's driven enough as a retriever. If I just said, well, you're not going to get your reward if you don't put these in your mouth. I'm not sure. I'm not sure he would have chosen to retrieve the keys. Or if he would, it would have taken him a really, really, really long time. And this way, in three days, I could drop keys anywhere and he's picking them up, you know, and happy about it. Like I know what to do. So it sounds like that you've picked what he is good at. And it sounds like you have matched your training style to fit his best criteria at that rate. Absolutely. And you know, each dog's a little different. Like, um, you know, when I have a dog, like my, my arch dog, my first arch dog, Hex is super duper food driven. So for her, I could say, hey, if you want this food, you'd better work. And not getting rewarded made her go, gee, I'd better work harder. So a lot of times she didn't, she often didn't need much for correction because it was like, well, if you'd like to eat, here you go. My first dog that I got a UDX on, Maestro, he was like, he didn't have anything that he um, really wanted so badly that if I withheld it, he would say, oh, gosh, I better work hard. Or he'd be like, oh, fine, keep it. I didn't want it that bad anyway. <laughs> like, <laughs> so what I had to do is almost kind of annoy him into compliance. Like I had to be like, just be like, nope, we're going to keep doing this. We're going to keep doing this. I'm not going away until you do it. Um, and you know, so different and both dogs achieved the goals that I had for them, but it was a different path to get there. Um, you know, and, but again, both of them, like I learned a lot from Maestro. If I had him again, I would train him differently and I'd like to think better. Um, but you know, when it's the first dog you're trying to take through the B classes and try to get beyond a utility title, he's also, he was my first mock dog. I look at some of the things I did you know, handling and stuff. And, oh, that poor dog, he deserves a medal. Um, but, you know, but you learn, you grow, you get better, right? And, but both of the dogs, like, they were very different. Well, it worked for Hex, you know, the number of times, actually, the day Hex got her arch, even, we showed an open first, and she failed, like, half of open. She was awful. And I took her back out of the ring and I showed her her extra special food that I saved for trials. And I'm like, you don't get this. You were naughty. And she went, oh, poop. And then she went out in one utility and finished her arch. Like, if I, with Maestro, what I had to do, if he came out of the ring and he worked like poo, is I took him out and I made him keep working. And we do whatever, you know, we fronts or healing or whatever, whatever I can do on the showgrounds. You know, I can't do directed jumping or anything like that, but I could keep him working until he was like, okay, fine. I will work the way you want me to. And then I was like, oh, good. Now you can take a break and here's some food that you may or may not want, but you know, you could have a break and you're a good boy. And so he started to learn that it was really in his best interest to go in the ring and work 
give me effort off the bat because then he got his Miller time sooner, you know? So that was kind of, that was, you know, you have to do what makes sense to the dog. Right. Well, along with that though, but as a trainer, how do you determine what a high value reward is? Where, where is that line of, cause some dogs have no food drive whatsoever. They just could care less. They get their meals and you know, that's it. It's just substance for them. It's not a drive. They don't care about treats. But mm-hmm. they like toys, or maybe mm-hmm. they don't like toys. I mean, but where, mm-hmm. how do you determine that? How do you build that? Well, you, I mean, first of all, you watch your dog, you interact your, with your dog and see. You can build some drive for that. I, with my dogs, because um, I, I find, especially for the obedience work, some of that more precise luring is easier to do with food than toys. It's just easier to show them some more precision with the food than it is with the toys. And so, one thing I'll do is they work before they eat. If you don't, if you're not giving me effort, I'll put your food away. So while I may not, okay, if I have a dog that isn't super food motivated, I'm not going to probably turn that dog from, yeah, whatever to, oh my gosh, I will do anything for food, but I can make them care a little bit more. And like, if the dog likes toys, okay, then I can try different toys, work on that, I have an extra special toy. There's a golden I recently got a mock on that she she had she wasn't my dog. She had a fairly cushy life outside of training and so she was sort of like, "Well, maybe I don't want to work that hard." Well, I had a holy roller ball that she loved and she only she didn't have that toy at home. She didn't have it any other time. She only got it when we did agility. And that worked so much better for her than food, even though she's a fairly food motivated dog, but she got a lot of treats in her regular life just because her mom loves her and likes to give her treats. So when I use them in agility, she was like, well, but I can already get these. That wasn't important to her, but the ball, she liked the ball. And what I did with that is I took her out with several different toys and we played and I was like, what does she really like? And then, and part of it too, is kind of my attitude So one thing when you're trying to build drive with a dog and you're trying to make them really want something is you have to act like it's a really big deal. Um, I see a lot of people that are sort of like waving a toy or food in front of the dog, kind of like begging them to want it. And if the dog's not sure, like if I'm trying to work with a dog and they're like, yeah, I don't know if I want that. I'll be like, well, good, because I want it. It's mine, you know? And then the dog's like, oh, well, wait a minute. Maybe I do want it, you know? So acting like it's a big deal and they're really missing out, like the fear of missing out is huge. You know, <laughs> kids, little kids FOMO. and dogs, man. <laughs> exactly. FOMO is huge. Right. Augie, who was a wonder, best-minded dog I've ever trained. He's a serv- He works as a service dog now. He really doesn't care that much about food or toys, but right. he loves to be right. Yes. So with him... I couldn't do much luring. I actually did a lot of, a lot of the teaching I did with him was very hands-on where I physically positioned his body. I physically positioned him into doing what I wanted to do. And his favorite thing in the world was for me to tell him good and give him a hug. Okay. You know, I mean, we, I think sometimes as trainers, people get really into, I want the dog to like the thing that I want them to like. And we have to remember that the dog gets to pick what they like. Like, I can build drive for something else, but at the end of the day, if I really want to reward my dog, I need to reward my dog with the thing that they really find rewarding. And if it's, absolutely, you know, and, and, and so I need to pay attention to my dog and what they like, and I need to, you know, and I need to honor that. And sometimes it's as simple as trying some different treats like Hex she will straight up kill you for a cheese stick. Like a lot of the high value (laughs) treats that, that you would think that she, I mean, not that she doesn't like them. She likes them. But if I really want to make a point, cheese sticks, man, you know, whereas. I mean, that's my reward. I mean, I love cheese sticks. Well, I've been known to wave cheese sticks at you too. So, you know, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) My sonnet, she, I mean, she'll eat cheese, but if I really want to work, want her to work well, then I need to pull out something like some roast beef or some chicken or something like that, some liver. That kind of thing is way bigger to her. My mom's fur dog would kill you for a banana. That was her reward coming out of the ring. That dog, that's how she got a notch. She worked for bananas, you know? 
<laughs> the reward is not, def- I mean, it seemed weird and it took mom a while to be like, I mean, she knew the dog begged for bananas every morning, but finally she was like, well, why am I not having her work for bananas and training? And it worked. I mean, you got to let the dog decide and then you can build from there. But you know, if your dog doesn't like cheese, then probably don't spend a lot of time wasting trying to beg them to work for cheese. Find something that they actually care about. Um, or buy the cheese for yourself and reward yourself. Exactly. Yeah. If you have all the cheese and you want to use it as a reward, reward yourself for doing a good job training your dog with the cheese and reward the dog with the thing that they actually want. <laughs> you know. Well, I think that's one thing I'm very fortunate with all of my guys is that they are balanced between toys and food. And I find that I don't use actual outside treats. I actually use their food as their motivator for targeted training. Mm-hmm. So if I want a specific behavior from them, if I'm working, if I'm doing like physical fitness work, working on rear end work, I will feed them their breakfast or their dinner and we'll go through the physical mm-hmm. fitness routine and Kyber and Nitro absolutely get a kick out of it. Pix is still kind of figuring mm-hmm. things out because I haven't miniaturized all the equipment just yet, but he's working on it. But yeah. for building drive mm-hmm. for them, they love tug toys. That is their number one thing that they absolutely do. Kyber will tug and tug and drag me across the ring. And Nitro likes to do the uh, the uh, drive-by tug where he comes he comes by, he grabs, runs, and then he tugs and then he lets it go. I mean, that's that's his thing. Mm-hmm. But whatever it is. Yep. And then Pix, uh, Pix loves to tug as well. He'll come back after doing a running dog walk and come flying out, grab the toy. And a lot of times, actually, I'll just let him take it. And his biggest reward is... If he gets that toy and he gets to run with it, he'll run all the way mm-hmm. up to the front yard and all the way to the backyard carrying it. And he thinks that's the best mm-hmm. thing in the world. And I mean, I didn't train that. It just happened to go, well, naturally, that's what he liked. And I was like, okay, well, mm-hmm. that's what you like. You just can't do that in the ring. You have to, I got to hold on to that toy though. Right. And that, yeah, exactly. And I, like with Hex, I really tried because Maestro. He liked, like, I could train agility with toys, and he liked his toys, and he would work for them, and I was like, by golly, I'm going to, I'm going to be better at this now. I mean, because I think that's one thing we do as trainers is, well, I did this before, and I'm better now, so by golly, you're going to learn this. Well, I worked and worked and worked with Hex as a puppy and tried to get her, I mean, and she'll play with toys, but she doesn't have toy drive. That's the other thing is, yeah, okay, my dog eats, that doesn't mean they have food drive. My dog will play with toys. It doesn't mean they have toy drive. There is a difference. And Hex will play with toys. But as soon as I said, well, you, if you want this toy, you have to work for it. She was like, keep your toy, lady. Like, <laughs> you are kidding me. And she just was like, I don't care. You know, and I can't, you know, you can't, there's a limit to how much you can do to make the dog care. Now, could I have really forced that issue? Yeah, probably. But why? I have a dog that will do backflips for string cheese. Why in the world would I spend all this time begging her to tug with a toy? You know, that's the beauty of, you know, things like lotus balls and pouches with cookies in them and stuff is I could still use toys where it was handy and she felt rewarded. Whereas my daughter's border collie, if I trained him all the time with treats, he would be like, well, why don't you like me? (laughs) But he'll do anything for a tug toy. Exactly. You know, like I say, you got to, and like I say, it's not like you can't build it, but it's like, gosh, it's just supposed to be a reward. You're rewarding the dog. So let the dog find the thing that's rewarded and then you can build it from there. And like you say, like using the food bowl, I put my daughter's first Sammy, I put a CDX on that dog. Natalie put the CD on her and then I decided to train her for open. Well, for some reason, the agility dog didn't think in an obedience setting she could possibly do a broad jump at all. And I struggled and struggled and struggled and thought of everything in the world to put between the planks of that broad jump so she wouldn't tip too through it. She did not care. I think I could have put the thing on hot coals and she still would have tiptoed through it. It took me embarrassingly long to figure out that maybe I should make her work for her food. And I, (laughs) so I fed everybody else and I took her outside to the broad jump and I put her bowl on the other side on the broad jump and I told her to jump and she was like, nope don't do broad jumps. I'm just going to tiptoe through. I said, well, too bad. And I gave her a couple of tries and she's like, nope, I don't do broad jumps. And I was like, well, that's too bad. And I brought her in and I put her food away and I didn't feed her. And Peach, Peach would have killed you for a piece of cardboard that was disguised (laughs) as kibble. 
So that made a really big impression on her. And I took her out the next morning and I set the broad jump and I took her out to the broad jump and I put the bowl on the other side and I told her to jump. And she's like, you know what? I love broad jumps. There is nothing I would rather do than jump this jump. And that's how she got her CDX. And so I'd warm her up and I'd have her food bowl. I'd give her just a little bit of breakfast the morning of a trial. So she didn't have an upset tummy. And I would have the rest of her food and I'd sit and we'd warm up and we'd work for some treats and some a little bit of kibble. And then I'd take her in the ring and I was like, that was really good. You're going to get supper for that. And she'd be like, oh, good. And then we do the next thing. That was really good. You're going to get supper. And by the time we got to the broad jump, she is higher than a kite. Boy, she looked cool. I mean, we weren't necessarily always terribly accurate, but she looked cool. And she'd do that broad jump. She was like, oh, heck yeah, come out. She knew because she knew she was right and she knew she was going to get her food. And that's how we did it, you know. And that was from a dog who was bound and determined no matter what, like chicken wire, all the stuff that they teach you to put between. I tried a bunch of balls in between. So she was slipping and sliding. Didn't matter. She was, she was like, don't, I, this is Cavaletti and I can tiptoe through it. But <laughs> one time saying, and every now and then it'd pop up in training or a trial where she'd be like, no, nah, I don't do broad jumps today. And I was like, well, that's too bad. I'm not feeding you right now. And, and she'd go, oh, well, poop. And, <laughs> and that kind of leads me to another thing that I think Whatever method you use, whatever you're doing with your dog, I think one thing that's really important and probably one of my favorite aspects of training, like one of the things we talk about a lot is attitude and the dog enjoying what they do, which is great because that was not a conversation that we really ever had as trainers when I first started training. It was the dog must obey. And now we want our dogs to like their job. I want my dogs to like their job. But one thing I will say, and hear me out, everybody listening, before you go, oh my gosh, is when I am training at first, or when I'm getting, not even at first, but as I'm getting deeper into the exercise, there is going to be a period of time where I'm not going to get real worried if my dog is not super excited about doing an exercise. Because what I'm finding and this is proven true now for several dogs in a row for me is, and I would say this applies more in obedience simply because for a lot of dogs, agility in and of itself is more intrinsically rewarding. Like dogs tend to like to run and jump. They tend to like running, you know, running with their person. And so a lot of dogs, I think agility, the act of doing agility is rewarding enough that we don't have as much issue with dogs feeling like they're unrewarded, feeling like they're not winning or whatever. Plus your time on course is a lot shorter in agility. And I can be telling my dog, you're doing a good job. Whereas in obedience, I can't do that as much, but especially in obedience. And especially when you're showing a lot, like if you're working on a UDX or an notch or something like that, your dog has to go in the ring a lot. And if you think about it, there's a, I mean, you're five to seven minutes here in the ring that you can tell their dog in between exercises, they're doing a good job, but I can't reward my dog physically. I can't give them a toy or a treat or anything like that. So how do I make my dog happy about going in the ring and working when they know they're not getting paid for five minutes or more? And what I've learned is that the way I make my dog work happy and the way I make them understand that they're right and that they're good is I love, I love to prove. I love putting my dog, challenging my dog, having them think through it. And what I found is that when my dog really, really understands their job and they know they're doing it right, they get this little bit of a swagger that before I've even said, you're a good dog, they know they're a good dog. They know they're right. And that's what I'm working for as a trainer. So like when I teach an exercise, you know, at first I'm, whether I'm shaping or luring or whatever I'm doing, you know, the dog's getting rewarded every time they do it right. I'm teaching them how to do it. Then I start making the dog more and more responsible. There comes a point where the dog is making a lot of mistakes, which I want them to make because I want them to understand what's right and what's not. And then I get to the point where I'm proofing, where I'm intentionally making it harder. You know, like I'm not standing straight in front of them on a front. I'm turning 45 degrees and they still got to hit their front or 
the retriever on the high, I'm throwing my dumbbell way off to the side. They need to still understand they have to take the jump and come back. You know, all different stuff like that. Or I'm making my healing. I'm not being a smooth handler. I'm being really abrupt. I'm turning tight and the dog's got to work. And I'm, and I make it kind of a game. It's like, can you outsmart me? Like, and who's smarter today, me or you, right? And what I find is the dogs, like for a little bit, they're like, oh gosh, this is hard. And, and, you know, they kind of, they slow down a little bit. You can kind of see the steam coming out of their ears as they're trying to figure it out, but then they get it. And those dogs, then when they're in the ring, before I've even, before the judges said exercise finished, before I've said, good dog, you're going to get treats when we get down or you're going to get your reward. The dog's already going, I did it right. And probably the two of the, I'm going to give two quick, cool examples of this. One is the golden that I got a mock and a rock on. I also got a UD on. And when I was showing her, the first time I showed her an open, I gave her a terrible throw on the dumbbell on the retrieve on the high jump. So we're lined up in front of the high jump and the dumbbell is way off to the left. The dog can see the dumbbell in a direct line off to her left without looking through the jump at all. Her owner was watching and freaking out. And I was like, no problem. As long as she's thinking, she's got this. So I said over and she was like, heck yeah, this is a setup and I know how. And she went out, took that jump, got that dumbbell, came all the way back over, hit that jump. And she was just, I mean, literally grinning. She was just wiggling and smiling. She's like, this was a setup and I got it. And it was cool because we were doing the backwards order and open. So it was broad jump, retrieve on the high retrieve on the flat. So we're going. And by the time we get to the healing, this dog is so proud of herself. She can't even see straight. I mean, she is healing like about to explode. And it was because she knew she was doing a good job. And that's what I want my dog to do. Like, of course, I'm going to tell them they're good. And of course, I'm going to reward them. But she was like, I did it right. Ha ha. And she was so proud of herself. And the other one was Hex, the 2020 NOC was in Orlando, Florida. Instead of, they canceled the classic, the obedience classic, and they moved the NOC to December, um, which national obedience championship, I guess I should say that. Um, and they, they canceled the classic and they moved the national obedience championship to Orlando during the invitational because of COVID. And so I went down to Florida and of course, you know, if you've never seen the setup for the national obedience championship, it's eight rings. You go in, you do like three exercises in a ring, come back out, three more, and it's all the open and utility exercises mixed. And by the end of the day, you've gone around and you've done everything. You've done all the exercises in open utility twice, except for articles you only do once. And when I should have been gearing up to really tune her up and get her ready, I was flat on my butt with COVID. So we go down there and... It's eight rings. And of course, anyone who's been down to the Invitational, it's, I mean, that place is huge and it's loud and it's busy and it's distracting. And my dog was bad. Like, I will say publicly, loudly, my dog was bad. Okay. She was passing, but she was like, couldn't do a front to save her life. And I'm not talking a little bit off. I'm like talking. 45 degrees off to the side, barely close enough for me to reach the, the retrieve object bad. You know, I mean, she's bad. And the thing is, is bless her heart. She knew she was wrong. And then, but, in, but she was like, couldn't unstick it because she wasn't tuned up, you know? So she's like, oh, I'm doing bad fronts. Oh no, you're not happy with me. Oh, I know I'm doing this wrong. And of course I'm frustrated and I'm trying not to be you know, I'm trying, but she's not stupid. She knows she's not doing it right. And she knows I'm not happy. I mean, I'm like, come on, babe, you can do it. And she's like, oh, I'm not doing this right. And so I'm frustrated. Only, you know, they take the top 50 the first day because most of the people that entered didn't come because COVID. There were only like 57 dogs that showed up. Well, we made the top 50 and we were second in the working group, but I was like, oh boy. And so we go in for day two for the finals and she's still, she's just like, oh, I'm doing a bad job. And I'm like, yes, would you please do better? And we're going around. Well, at the time, 
she she was always really good at her go outs for the directed jumping, but we went through a phase where if the jump to my right, ironically, which is the side that she has an eyeball on when she's facing me, if she deemed that jump more distracting than the jump to my left, she wouldn't take it. She'd go take the left jump twice. And so, and she really, really hates the video, the rings that are on camera at the NLC. And so we'd been in the ring before and the glove, the, the camera was right by the glove. And so she went out and got the glove because she knew she had to, but she death marched out to the glove, picked it up, death marched back, did a terrible front. She was like, oh, I have to go to this camera. So we go to the next ring and it's directed jumping and healing and something else. The jump on the right, on my right, guess what? That's where the camera is. So she does her go out and we get the jump on my left first and she does that. Center on the second go out and it's the jump to my right. And I'm thinking she's not going to take this jump. And I pointed at it and I said over and you could see her go, oh, crap. But she did it. She got up and she went over and she took that jump. And I tell you what, that dog, she took the jump and she landed and I about burst into tears because I was so proud of her. And you could see her. She was like, I did it. I did it right. And she came into me. And I could just see her growing with every step as she came into that front. And I'm looking at her and I'm like, you did it. And she's looking at me and she's like, I did it. I mean, you could just see her whole body language change from a dog who looked like she went to the NOC because she managed to eke out one notch point at a specialty to a dog that actually looked like she belonged. And our next three rings, I think we had three or four rings left. She, I had my dog. It was so awesome. She was like, I freaking did it. I mean, she just puffed up and she like that confidence. And she did that, like I say, before I could even re tell her she was good. You know, we were still in the middle of the exercise and she was just like, I did it right. And that's what I go for with my dogs. That's what I want them to do is I want them to understand their job that well. And put them in fair but difficult situations where they proof and they problem solve and they learn so that when they make a good choice like that, they're, they're like, heck yeah, and they're all proud because that's how you get that, I think, that more consistent work in the ring. And that's how you get that happy work, even though they know that they're not going to get rewarded till after you come out. And so that's... Like that was like, that'll stick with me a long time. Like watching her face when she landed after that jump and she's like, mm -hmm, I did it. And just puffing, you know, just like, heck yeah, I'm awesome. That'll stick with me a long time. Well, so speaking of training, so there's always tools to do it. What do you feel about the e-collars and prong collars? Because those are some rather hot topics that can go one way or the other. Cause I have seen some people who got dogs that were trained on e-collars and these people who have these dogs literally live off of these remotes as if it's the only thing in the world. And I feel like that's a detriment to the dog because dog can't live off an e-collar 24 seven. Right. I, I think they're both great training tools used properly. And I think, but what I'm going to say is this about an e-collar. I think an e-collar is one, it can be a fabulous tool, but it's probably one of the most misused tools. Um, so I, I love an e-collar and I love it because I can, without needing a line on my dog, I can very precisely in the moment clarify this is the thing I don't like. I can mark that in that moment without having to put hands on the dog, without having to, um, like I say, put a line on the dog. I actually started using e-collars when Hex first was having trouble with her glaucoma because I had to find new ways to help her understand some things because with the glaucoma, I don't want a collar tightening around her neck because that can actually cause eye pressure spikes. So I would start to use the collar to, without having to put anything on her neck, help her understand a correction. 
where people get in huge trouble with an e-collar is they, first of all, they use it as punishment. They put them on, they turn it up and they, they're like, their goal is to fry the dog. I'm going to get you. That's not training. That's punishing. And that's not helping your dog learn. And that was not the purpose of the e-collar when it was for, when exactly. It first came out. That's not exactly. was, that was not the design for trainers in general. Because what I find as in my many travels and going through the airport, what surprises me more than anything else is finding these quote unquote service dogs that have e-collars on them, and these mm-hmm. handlers are literally grasping and squeezing these uh, these e-collars so tight. So are the, uh, the actual, the remote for the e-collar mm-hmm. and I'm going, well, I'm not a service dog trainer, but I'm pretty sure the last service dogs that I've seen didn't have to have somebody having a death grip on the remote or actually even using a remote for a service mm-hmm. dog when it's actually out working. So, uh, it kind of befuddled right. me there. I was just kind of going service dog with an e-collar. That's uh that's a new concept to me. Right. Well, here's the thing. When you use an e-collar, what... Where I see people go wrong, like I say, they put them on, they want to get the dog. And instead of teaching the dog, like I talked about earlier, any correction you use on the dog, you need to teach them, this is the correction, this is how you turn it off. So when I'm using an e-collar, I start off, you know, it's low. I will say a preface, I have put the e-collar on my arm and I have used every single setting. I know what every single setting on my e-collar feels like on my own bare skin. So I'm going to say that. And some of them, yes, do make you <laughs> take notice. But Great drinking game. It is. It is, right? <laughs> and so what I do is when I, if I'm going to use it for something, I am going to show the dog how to respond. And the other thing is I'm going to use it at as low of a setting as I can where the dog is noticing it. Like for Hex, her little base of her ear will twitch. That's how I know it's right. Okay, I got a response there. So I don't want my dog screeching. I don't want them going, oh my gosh. I want them to feel it and go, and then I want to say, this is what I want you to do. So like, I'll give you an example of where I use the e-collar, where I was able to get some really good clarity for my dog much faster than I could in something else. Sonnet, you know, when I'm training the retrieves and stuff like that and the recall, she, they're working on a long line or a flexi a lot of the time so I can kind of build muscle memory for the way I want them to go out and turn and come back on the retrieve. Well, once I took the, the flexi off, she just, she was thinking, I mean, I know what she was doing. She was thinking, but she'd turn around and she'd slow down and she'd walk. And I didn't want that to become a habit because in obedience, every time they walk in on something, you're losing two or three points every time. So, and I couldn't, as soon as I put a line back on her, she was like, Oh, got it. In this situation with the line on, I'm supposed to trot. But as soon as I took it off and I tried some other ways of trying to help her understand and it was not working, like she wasn't getting it and she was getting really frustrated. She was like, oh my gosh, I'm not right. So with the e-collar on, okay, she knows what come means. We've worked that with the line, setting really low and she's super soft. Like literally you basically got it set on vibrate and you know maybe one notch above vibrate because she's so hairy. She goes out with the dumbbell. She turns around and she starts to walk. I'm like, no, come. And I hit the button. As I said, come. And she went, oh, okay. And she came trotting in, good girl. And then instantly I could tell her she was right. I did that like three times. She's like, oh, that's what you wanted. I mean, you could just see her being like, oh, thank God. I know what I'm supposed to do now. Where my goal isn't to make my dog's hair stand on end. I don't want to hurt them. I don't want to punish them. I want them to understand. So like. It's a great, and it's a great tool for working at a distance because I can be super precise. But again, you have to teach the dog what it means. Same with a prong collar. Like, I actually like the action of a prong collar. If I'm trying, if I have a dog that's a little tougher, that's willing to lean on a buckle collar, I like that prong collar, especially like a little smaller link where I don't feel like I've got, you know, like I'm trying to train an elephant or something. I want a smaller link. <laughs> that but you know well i'll use i'll use pepper i'll use my younger girl as an example pepper is kind of the epitome of a sled dog bitch right like she's tough and she's ready to go and what was my breed bred to do they were bred to work and they were bred to work in harsh conditions and not 
be slowed down by uncomfortable things. You know, they're supposed to run through the ice and the snow and the bad weather and whatever and, and keep working. And if the sled is heavy, too bad, keep pulling. And that's who she is. She's a great example of a dog that works like that. Well, when I'm walking with my dogs, I do a ton of foundation and loose leash walking. My dogs understand, again, horse trainer here. I teach my dogs to give to pressure on the collar. So whether they've got two feet of leash or 20 feet of leash, if they hit the end of that line, they feel the collar, they should turn. Well, Pepper understands this, but she doesn't necessarily always care. For anyone who follows me on Facebook, you'll see I am often walking four, five, six, seven, eight dogs at once. I can't have my dogs pull. We're all going to die. So Pepper walks in a prong collar because then instead of going cracked, cracked, cracked or stopping or whatever all the time, I give her one pop and she's like, oh, that's right. It's still a rule today because she asks that question every day. Do I have to listen to you? And every day I have to say yes. Today, the rules are just the same as they were yesterday. And then I'm not nagging, you know? And so I like, if I have a dog that's a little bit tougher and they don't care, again, you got to go with the dog. Like one horse trainer that I really respect says a thing and it's as soft as possible, as firm as necessary. So if I'm if my dog has a foundation, if I really feel like my dog understands what they are supposed to do, but they maybe are muddy as to whether or not they feel like they have to do it, you know, for instance, like Pepper in the loose leash walking, I feel like she understands it, but she's like, I don't care. I would like to pull. Well, instead of nagging at her and nagging at her and nagging at her on her buckle collar and being miserable or avoiding walking her, which she loves to go for walks. Because I'm like, I'm tired of dealing with this. I put her on the prong and then we don't have to have that argument. And so I make it clearer to my dog that, yeah, this rule is, it applies. And then I'm not frustrated and my dog's not frustrated and we can safely do our thing. But again, like any tool you use, and this is true for halties and prong collars and e-collars and choke chains and regular collars and harnesses and any of that stuff. You teach the dog how to respond and you don't use it as punishment. You use it to clarify their job. And I think anytime you go in with any sort of tool, you have to remember to show the dog what to do. And on that same note, like anytime I correct a dog, give the dog a consequence for something, I always repeat my command. So like if I'm buzzing on an e-collar or popping on a leash or giving my retrieve, my little cheek tug or whatever, I always am like, come or take it or heal or whatever, because I never want my dog to feel I'm just punitively doing stuff to them. I want them to go, oh, that's right. I was supposed to take it. Okay. So they know why, because I want them to know what they were supposed to do and how to be right. This is what you're getting corrected for. If you do this thing that I've already taught you, because again, there's that foundation there, then I'm not going to correct you again. And then it becomes much more fair. But yeah, with the prong collars and the e-collars, again, good tools in the right situation, but you still have to teach them and don't use them as tools of punishment. Use them as tools of precise learning to clarify the dog's job. Absolutely. I think that is phenomenal advice. I love that phrase, soft as possible, but firm as necessary. I think that is phenomenal words to live by, not only for training, but just general advice in life because some yeah. people just uh, some people just kind of roll over and just take whatever is coming to them, but they don't stand up for themselves. And mm -hmm. then there's others who kind of become too much of a bully there. So it's great words to live by. Uh, definitely, mm -hmm. definitely great life advice there. Oh, yeah. And it's like when you train dogs, like I have like Augie, the service dog I talked about earlier, a correction for Augie was to look at him and say no, and maybe take a hold of his little rough and just hold on to him for a second, like to refocus him and say no. And he was like, oh, gosh, I'm so sorry. That was a correction for Augie. If I corrected Pepper that way, she would laugh in my face. She would be like, you're stupid. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's just you have to read your dog. So you want to be, but I never want, I mean, again, I, I mentioned that I come from, from horses and if I, if you're working a horse and you're always like being really strong with the rein or really strong with the leg, pretty soon the horse gets dead to the aids, meaning they don't, when you pick up a rein and ask them to bend, instead of being soft and softly bending, they will lean on you. 
And I think a dog is the same way. If the dog says, anytime I make a mistake, you're going to correct the snot out of me. Then all they do is they make the mistake and then they just bear down and wait. And that's not what you want. I want my dog to go, oh, poop, I should have done that better and be already ready to do better before I've even done any sort of consequence. And then and then, and then it becomes more pleasant for you, more pleasant for the dog. And then, okay, if they do something real stupid and you need to make a point, you make a point, but then you go back and you be soft again. And then the dog understands their job and then they're happier. And it's a lot more fun to train a dog that you could be like, no, that wasn't right. Let's try again. And they're like, okay, that's a lot more fun for me and a lot more fun for my dog. And so if I can yep, be in absolutely. that place where I can be soft as much as possible. That's, that's, that's just, it's a lot more fun for everybody. Right. And, and that's the name of the game. It's supposed to be fun. It's, you know, it's not supposed mm-hmm. to be about punishment. It's not supposed to be about harshness. This is about building a relationship and bonding with your dog and doing those kind of things, even though it may be hard at sometimes. it's trying to make it fun at the end of the day, because we all love to win and we all love to come home with big ribbons. But having that bond at the end of the day, knowing that if I've asked my dog to do a recall, because recalls are number one in my house as far as mm-hmm. that's a life-saving tool, like you said earlier, mm-hmm. that I don't want my dog running off and getting hit by a car i absolutely want to uh well i have that recall and in fact actually i use a prong collar for kyber because while most of the time we're not doing a lot of leash walking because it's mostly just on the property and mm-hmm. at agility trial so i don't do a whole lot of leash walking uh with him but when i go out to let's say home depot i like to have that prong collar there just as a reminder that there is some pressure there to remind to go hey you're not supposed to pull and it helps and it builds a great uh, a great relationship for us because he understands that this is what we're doing here. We're just going for a walk. There's no reason to pull me here at this point. So I feel like it's a very, very useful tool. But again, it's a tool and all tools can be used in inappropriately and in a very harsh and very unfair manner to the dog. So in short, um, first of all, I'd love for you guys to comment you know, get on our Facebook page. Love to hear comments. I'd love to hear, you know, rebuttals. I'm sure there's going to be people that are going to disagree and that's fine. Um, you know, but we'd love to hear your thoughts, your anecdotes, anything. Um, but I want to wrap it up by saying when you're training your dog, you know, remember to do what works for your dog, do the reward that they actually find rewarding, teach them a correction that makes sense to them and that makes sense to you. Remember that correction does not equal punishment. We want the dog to build understanding, not build fear. Work with your dog. Remember, it's supposed to be fun at the end of the day when it's all said and done. You're both supposed to end up having a good time. Absolutely. That's well said there. I I greatly appreciate all the advice you gave tonight and all your insights of all the years of training and uh, working with dogs over all these years and the horses too while we're at it. So, yeah, I hope everybody gets on and and gives us some feedback. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, enjoy trading your dogs. (laughs) 